0: Well, welcome to Glam City. I'm Anna Clark and this is our third season. If you have not been listening, Glam City is a weekly radio show on 2SER and basically looking at, you know, what's on in Sydney, but also what's not really known about the Sydney history cultural scene. We're going to lift the curtain and take you behind the scenes to reveal some of the work of our marvellous archivists, curious curators and purveyors of cultural heritage, who are working across galleries, libraries, archives and museums, that's the GLAM sector, across Sydney and Australia. Today we are very lucky to have on GLAM City our guest, Tom Murray, who's a Senior Lecturer in Media at Macquarie University. Tom has a really interesting career blending Multimedia audio visual media representations of the past, and a scholarly academic history career. welcome Tom thanks, Good to be here. What got you interested in history?
1: I was actually working at the University of New South Wales as a uh, geographer, and I was teaching undergraduate, mostly physical geography, rivers and things, and we were doing a unit on partly arid land ecologies and things like this and there was these amazing records of explorers' journals. So in a way to talk talk about changing ecologies, we're looking at these explorers' journals and we're talking to the students about various things, about these the changing ecologies, in this particular case of the Simpsons, Reslecki Deserts and so on. And the explorers' journals were just so brilliant and so amazing. And this one particular... Uh, I was working with a colleague, uh, Mike Letnick, who's at uh, UNSW now, as an ecologist, and this one particular explorer, William Oswald Hodgkinson is his name, and he was the guy that went on a relief expedition to try to find Burke and Wills in the 1870s, and he had all these amazing accounts of his interactions with Aboriginal people, of going to, to find this mysterious place called Picheringa, which was the home of this Aboriginal narcotic called pitchery and through, through the page, you could just see like his like desire to find this place, his attempts to try to get there and um, coerce, charm, whoever which way the Aboriginal people that he was coming across to try to get to this place. And I thought, this is amazing. This is actually a lot more fun than teaching undergraduate geography to me. And uh, so we eventually made a, a documentary for a the now defunct sadly hindsight project a program on on abc radio national that was called uh, along the Pitchery trail trying to find this mysterious drug and what we what we had was really a, a cultural history about about place uh, about people's interactions with place um, because this drug um sort of uh surfaced a really interesting Historical junctures, for example, just after the Second World War, where where tobacco was really scarce, suddenly all the pastoralists needed to, you know, they're giving people baccy and flour and whatever as as wages, and they suddenly had to find some pitchery because they didn't have enough tobacco. So then pitchery made a a rise again in the 40s and 50s, and we went to a lot of the old station owners and asked them about uh, pitchery and place, and it was a, and I suddenly thought, well, this is really. Cool. This Mm. is really – and all of my work has been involving sort of anthropology, geography, history and storytelling. Mm. And that was a really – a moment where they all sort of came together and I thought I could do this more.
0: When the usual kind of trajectory of somebody finding an interest in history might be to then write a book or start a PhD or do a history degree, um, but yours has been very much – creative outputs, Mm. and you've worked on some really interesting projects such as Ducky Arrow vs. The King uh, in 2004, um, In My Father's Country, a beautiful beautiful film documentary, and Love in Our Own Time, also another film, as well as lots and lots of radio programs. What made you think about, I mean, I suppose these are all about storytelling Mm. um, as opposed to necessarily history books or texts?
1: Mm i could have I could have gone and written text. I, I like writing, but that the immediacy I think of asking people about stories and hearing their voices and uh, all the inflections of voice and and then when I was combining that with making films of of the image of people. and of course, when you're dealing and working with with Aboriginal people that people can represent themselves. Uh, they're not mediated through the the voice, for example, of me as a writer. They're talking directly. In the case of Ducky I was the King, for example, um, the people that were part of that film, and it was very much a collaboration with the the Dujapu people, the young people of of Blue Mad Bay, they were talking directly to camera. And at the very beginning of that process, uh, I was talking with Dukar Wirpanda, who's one of the key um, men in that film, and uh, I said, to him, you know, who do you want to talk to in this? Who do you want to talk to? And he said I want to talk to Nelson Mandela and I want to talk to everyone in the world. And he had something really powerful to say about reconciliation a whole bunch of things and he felt that through the camera he could talk to those people. Now I think that that uh, through the written media, he could also have talked to those people, but it would. it's obviously more mediated. So that's also a compelling reason for me mm. to, to be using the kind of media that I have. You're
0: listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. These sort of question of, of country and place and, I suppose, more pressing social questions like reconciliation – kind of echo throughout a lot of your work, including um, In My Father's Country, which I believe you also worked on your as a, on your PhD for. And one of your most recent works called The Skin of Others, you look at the case of an Aboriginal man called Douglas Grant. But it's like his, his history is still echoing today. Could you tell us a little bit about this project and also um, the sorts of, I guess, outcomes that have come from this research?
1: I was... Uh, lucky enough to get a, a, an ARC Decra to to look into the life of Douglas Grant, uh, and Douglas Grant was a man who was very famous uh, in the early twentieth century, particularly because he went to fight in the First World War. So, uh, as an Aboriginal man fighting in the First World War, he was quite a novelty and was written about in a lot of the newspapers, particularly post-war, coming back and, and um, as he enlisted and the. The basic refrain of a lot of the newspaper articles was uh, this loyal, um, honorable Aboriginal man is fighting for his country, are you? And it was used you know in those kind of ways and and also, I suppose because it was was incredibly novel. It was this full black Aboriginal man who was going to fight in the First world war. And he had this Scottish heritage, his name was Douglas Grant, and so it was a very intriguing story
0: what 's some of the back detail of that because that just seems kind of so um unreal now, looking back on it
1: yeah, and his whole story is unreal, which is what i tried to 've tried to kind of unpick in a radio documentary and uh a little bit in a short film that I made, and subsequently in a feature documentary that I'm making. And so he was born around 1885 in the forests of uh, rainforests of the Atherton Tablelands, which at the point would have been incredibly thick, dense rainforest. And I visited there; it just would have been at that point magnificent, incredible. Our Amazon. Um, so he's born into the the rainforest nations of of the Atherton Tablelands. And he was unlucky enough to have been born at almost exactly the historical juncture where uh, miners had just found that area area that had been gold rushes on the Herberton and uh, and a lot of the rivers nearby. And so by 1886, um, gold and tin were found just on a river nearby where he was where he was born. And so subsequently, as is very common in the, the Queensland frontier, it was. Just incredibly brutal. Um, there was a bunch of massacres in the area around 1886, 1887, and in one in 1887. Um, so we learn from a lot of the the, the stories of, of the time of around World War One when Douglas Grant uh, went to war that his family was wiped out in what was called a tribal disturbance in the uh, or a tribal fight in a lot of the the literature at that time.
0: The euphemistic language of the frontier
1: yeah yeah I mean what i mean this is one of the things that fascinates me is the way that language can completely obfuscate the truth while having just enough kernel that it can be said in a, some kind of straight face way so so the role of the native police of course, is what can enable it to be said in polite white societies as being a tribal disturbance that you know a lot of these people were killed by by Aboriginal native police, and so therefore it's a tribal disturbance. But um, Douglas Grant, uh, in 1887, is around about a two-year-old. His family were uh, dispersed, another of the terms of the time, but uh, people, who knows if there were survivors from this particular massacre. Uh, In any case, some miners um, found this child, and um, it was known at that point that uh, there was a, a couple from the Australian Museum... Uh, who were collecting birds and uh, animals and plant specimens for the museum, that uh, uh, Elizabeth Grant had wanted a child, wanted a black baby, I think was the the term that uh, was used by a local historian I spoke to up there. And so some of the miners gave the child to them and they brought the child back down to Sydney in 1887 and he was brought up in this family and... uh, uh, he calls himself the, the, his, the, his foster parents and he took uh, took the name that they gave him which was Douglas Grant so he's brought up in this a uh, couple of Scottish enclaves uh, one in Lithgow and then the other in Annandale a good Scottish name so Annandale suburb he, he went to the local uh, public school and was brought up there uh, got a good e- education and trained as a draftsman and then when the First World War broke out he went to fight in the First World War Uh, But there were so many different kind of fraying strands of this story that sort of didn't make sense or demanded a little bit uh, more investigation. And they completely intrigued me, so I needed to find out a bit more about his story.
0: And some of these come out in um, the radio documentary that I've listened to and also in the short film. I mean, there's a there's a sort of a beautiful overlay, beautiful's probably not quite the right word, a powerful overlay of imagery as he goes off and he's had his sort of having a flashback to World War One, but it's a flashback of the World War I uh, violence wi- mixed with a kind of uh, frontier violence and you're never really sure... Um, who this guy is and where he's from. And I, I think you, I was interested in the visual challenges of representing that um, dispersed identity, I suppose, and the f- phrase of his life that you're trying to piece back together visually but also and also orally in those documentaries.
1: Yeah. There's this kind of uh, dream sequence, I think, that this is in a film. Uh, a short film about uh, when Douglas Grant met an old war colleague, and uh, at the house of Henry Lawson, which is kind of quite interesting in uh, 1921. And the, the, I suppose what I wanted to do with this is that we have this um, foundational conflict in Australia, the frontier wars, by which you know colonial conquest of this country was made possible, and then we have our preferred foundational narrative, which is around ANZAC. It's a uh, where Australia. Becomes Australia in so many ways in in the popular discourse, but I wanted to put these two two together because they can in the life of this guy Douglas Grant because he was a survivor of both of these wars, and um, I mean I have a two year old at the moment and uh, she's two at the moment I'm sure she'll grow older (laughs) and I'm constantly thinking about you know what is it that she retains, Uh, and you know from my own thinking back about my childhood and my earliest memories are probably when I'm around four or so. So I'm, I'm not sure that she's going to have any conscious memories of this particular time, but there are things that she will retain in herself. Maybe some images that are stored somewhere that have other analogues later on that she kind of marries on top of each other. And so Douglas Grant, who was there as a two-year-old, was a really good talker. We know that because uh They named him Pop and Jerry, which my theory is that um was from pop a Guy from a parrot, you know he was constantly repeating things and uh, so we he was a good talker, he was certainly processing all these things. What does he retain of that earliest memory of family? How might that have manifest in his thinking during World War I? I'm not sure it would be conscious at all, but I think in his person those things uh, coalesce, and in in the national consciousness, the mm-hmm. Australian historical consciousness, the attempt to keep those two apart. I know that you've written a lot, uh, Anna, on um, historical consciousness, frontier wars, um, the, the history wars, and so on, but the the, the way that we the, we our our national story and the effort to keep these different stories apart is so powerful so I wanted to put them together in Mm. his life and I wanted to mix them up in such a way that war is war and it's traumatic war. This would have been at I, I can't imagine what kind of trauma it would have been for Douglas Grant to have been ripped away from his family in that particular way. Mm. And and the traumatic wound of that is never really discussed in his narratives. So, yeah, I wanted to put those those two together. Mm. Yeah.
0: This work is posing lots of kind of historical questions on both the past itself, but also how we remember and curate that past. And Another one of is is Douglas Grant's kind of identity and self-identity as... Uh, an Aboriginal man, as a Scotsman, as an Australian, what are some of the examples of of that, and how you dealt with that in in the work?
1: Well, th- there's there's so many there's so many discussions about about Douglas Grant because in the centenary of World War One, of course, we're constantly going back through the the National Archive to to think about what it means cent- uh, hundred years after Anzac and so on, and uh, we need we know enough in popular media, that that we can't exclude stories of women, Aboriginal people and so on. So they've been included in this Mm. national narrative, but only very selectively. And so one of the things that's been brought up is Douglas Grant as a character. And it's constantly discussed about how he was brought up by this Scottish family and he spoke in a Scottish accent. And um, that's almost been taken as a given that he was a black Scotsman. And I wanted to look into this a little bit. Um, uh, if you look much earlier, then they, as in there was a documentary made in 1957 about Douglas Grant, uh, ABC Radio 1 by John Thompson and Brian Hungerford. And I, th- I think as part of that, you do get a sense that Douglas performed part of his Scottishness. But a, a lot of the nuance of that has been lost. And now it's a scene that he spoke with a Scottish accent and so on. And so I wanted to unpack that a little bit. And uh, in the documentary, we do that. Mm. This is Alec Chisholm again.
0: He was put to school subsequently, and he grew up into uh, a very decent and likeable little boy. One of his characteristics, as perhaps was inevitable, was that he acquired the Scottish uh, (laughs) dialect of his foster father and uh, his foster grandfather.
1: Historian Anne Curthoys,
0: And that just doesn't ring true to me. He was brought up in Sydney. And most people don't speak really with the accent of their parents. They speak with the accent of their peers and who they went to school with and who's down the street. It just doesn't ring true. And it does lead to this question of performance that he's speaking in that accent in certain situations to perform a Scottish identity. Um, and having dark skin and performing Scottishness is obviously intriguing for people, and he presumably realises that and, and plays with it. And that was historian Anne Curthoys talking about Douglas Grant. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. I am talking with historian, filmmaker, documentary maker Tom Murray about some of the, I guess, creative potential and creative tensions of blending history with documentary making. And your latest project, Tom, is just an amazing one about a worm, of all things. Um, And listening to this documentary about the Lambton worm took me back to a place that I thought I had buried of childhood fears of the bush or darkness or baths you know whirlpools um can you tell me a little bit about the monstrous worm and also the project that emerged from
1: it well the monstrous worm is about my childhood fear of this story that my father told me when I was just very young and we often we get on and we bury these things and we move on but it, was really, it became really interesting to me when I went back, having my own kids, I suppose, and, and how they process things that I tell them was one of the, the inspirations for it. But in, in making work, it's about uh, otherness, about uh, differentiating between myself and, and uh, another person, about the, ways, the way that others are integral to the dominant society's definition of themselves. The figure of the monster becomes really interesting as a material manifestation of otherness, of fear, of anxiety, of something that needs to be defeated in order to, to give dominant culture mm. their foundation. It's very archetypal, isn't it? Mm. I've actually heard the interpretation of the worm as a foreign power as well. Well, this, this area has always been raided by...
0: Outsiders in it, the the Vikings, people from the south coming up, Scotch, north. Scotch coming down to rape and pillage and whatever.
1: Mm. Hmm. I think that was very much manifested in the way that the people voted in the EU referendum, to be perfectly honest. Uh, the fear of foreigners uh, is very, very strong in the area and the fear of immigration is strong in the area, but Look, the levels of people uh, who come from Eastern European countries or people who are immigrants into this area is very, very small in comparison to the rest of the country. People are uh, the the sick of people coming
0: just coming into the area and coming from different countries or whatever uh, and taking possession of different things. So, yes, there's a, I think there's part of Brexit is protectionism. We want to keep that this... That was why it was the highest vote, is that Jeff in the North East? Yeah. To leave the um, European Union? Europe?
1: Yeah. What besides that? Getting back to your story, Tom. I reckon all these stories are kind of part of it, because what you're talking about is people feeling a lack of control, and I think that is a fundamental aspect of the Lambton and worm story. Yes. Yeah,
0: Definitely. But, uh, <laughs>
1: Yeah, and and so then I thought again about this this monster that I had as a child.
0: But this is an English monster, and you grew up in northern Sydney. So can you tell me a little bit about how your monster got where you grew up in your mind, and also then perhaps tracing it back in
1: time? So... Going to sleep at night, my father thought it would be a good idea to tell me this story. (laughs) Thanks, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) This story about this worm. And the really salient point about this worm is that it ate children. So for a, I don't know, four-year-old or whatever I was, um, it was quite a terrifying beast. And it did live under the bed, as so many classic monsters do. Uh, but then I remember going to soccer training at Manly Vale, and uh, and the creature somehow lived in the creek at Manly Vale. It was just it was I don't know why it gravitated to water, and then a little bit later on when I was uh, down playing soccer down at Curl Curl, it was along the edges of Curl Curl Lagoon. It was sort of in the the long reeds and the bamboo there. It was so I never saw it but it was always just lurking there so it was something that was lurking in my consciousness and i wanted to try to explore what this thing was that was lurking in my consciousness it was it was a fear it was a fear of the unknown it was a fear of of potential threat uh uh and to go back to the northeast of england where this lambton worm actually was supposed to have existed mm. was a really uh interesting family history a
0: biography of your own fear in a sense
1: yeah yeah. And, and one of the things I'm always interested, uh, geography, history, anthropology, the way these all come together. Storytelling. Storytelling. And this the story of the Lambton worm, uh, if we were to track it right, right back in time, it probably, the worm might have existed as a nature being that was, perhaps the early Celts saw it as a manifestation of the creative and destructive aspects of water. Water, you know, is life-giving, and but sometimes in flood it's very dangerous and uh, there's things that live on the edges of water and you probably want to try to get your kids not to go to the water's edge and all that kind of stuff. But then the worm got subsumed into narratives around the Christian domination of the northeast of England. So
0: it's been sort of retold by successive generations and then we as historians have to go back and kind of read through or read between the lines of these successive interpretations over time, which go back, you know, a thousand years.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I love the fact that there's this kind of phenomenological sort of impetus. So in a documentary that I made for for Radio National, I, I really wanted to include Sounds of nature. So, and a lot of them are Australian. So, you know, uh, as a kid, when a, a possum goes on a tin roof, that may, that's that's a monster, isn't it? If you're a kid, and the hissing that possums make and the fighting that they have, monsters. In the documentary, I, I use a lot the sound of the curlew from from North Queensland, which has just got a haunting quality. That's just that's a monster. Hmm. Tim Ingold has a great. Uh, Uh, Article where he talks about uh, dragons and monsters and Mm -hmm. and the way that they they manifest fears of the natural world. Uh, There's all these sounds that would have been monstrous, and so I wanted to try to to unpack a lot of these kind of sensational um, felt experiences of. Of otherness in place.
0: It reminds me a little bit of seeing some of the um, rock art of the Quinkin Caves about the sort of monsters out there that you don't know or even um, that amazing exhibition at the National Museum that was on earlier this year of the, um, the Seven Sisters the kind of amorphousness of the unknown and how it also has a storytelling capacity and you play with that in this documentary, this audio documentary about storytelling over time and what these people would have sounded like as
1: well yeah, yeah, absolutely, and there's, I think there's something really interesting about the way that we, the the world over, that we manifest these these monsters, and um, so in the second part, it's a two-part series. In the second part, I look at a lot of um, indigenous. Um, serpent beings, lightning serpents. There's a Natchi in the Bakanji people's thinking in the Darling River and lightning serpents from northeast Arnhem Land and associations with lightning. And for a long time, peoples all over the world associated lightning with dragons and fear of of others in some way, people and non-people, all sorts of anxieties around that. And so in the documentary, I I play with that with uh, using... The, uh, a particular historical um, segment of Simeon of Durham, a very early historian from the, the 12th century, and what he sounded like. And he's talking about Vikings and more mar- marauding peoples from the north, but associating them with dragons and with lightning. And Australian Indigenous Dreamings, there's lots of associations with lightning snakes and both benevolent and malevolent aspects of that. But this is all a long way from my Australian worm and the child-eating worm bait of a guilty conscience that threatened my 1970s boyhood. Those were days when we knew little about Australia's own colonial wars of conquest and even less about the worms and serpents that created and fought to protect the country of the first Australians.
0: Thank you, it's been really great talking to you. Um, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our episode. But before we sign off, we have a last little glam slam segment where we talk about the things that are coming up in our history diaries over the next couple of weeks. Tom, what's in your history diary?
1: So coming up, I've, I'm on the 6th of September. I'm going to go to a an event at the State Library of New South Wales, which will be really exciting, I mm-hmm. think. It's called Truth, Memory and the Media. Ah. And uh, it's put on by the History Council of New South Wales during History Week. Yep and it's co-hosted by the Centre for Media History and the Centre for Applied History at Macquarie University. Cool. There's a bunch of interesting things that are happening through the course of the day. Um, Rebecca Scott Bray is doing a keynote, and then there's a a couple of panels, one on truth and history in which I'll give a paper, but the one I'm really looking forward to is in the second panel of the day called Trauma, Crime and Memory, and um, one of my colleagues, uh, Peter Doyle, who's a, a fabulous storyteller and wonderful raconteur, and he's doing a paper called On the Trail of the Kingsgrove Slasher.
0: And people can find out more about that by going to the History Council of New South Wales website where the program for History Week is up.
1: And I, I know that for Masters and PhD students, tickets are free and for non-full-time wage, they're also free, but it's $25 for the waged.
0: And that brings us to the close of Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SCR website, that's 2 dot. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. And if you can't get enough history in your ears, we recommend listening and subscribing to History Lab a new podcast series about all things past. Hit us up on Twitter. You'll find Tamsin, my regular co-conspirator, under at Cap and Gown and me under at Anna Clark. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3 and thank you so much to Tom Murray for coming in. You can listen to Tom's series on the Lampton Worm if you're game, on the History Listen on ABC. That show, like ours, is available online or through any podcast app and if you want to get in touch, shoot just an email at glamcity at 2ser.com. Glam out.